It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni. We are in the midst of an epidemic. In the U.S., in 2016, there were a reported 63,000 opioid overdoses leading to death. And nearly two-thirds of these deaths were by a legally prescribed opioid or an illicitly obtained drug. People are getting addicted to opioids and dying at rates we have never seen before. More Pennsylvanians have died from overdose than from fatal vehicle accidents, and the numbers are growing. Today, we're going to discuss the problem as it exists here in Franklin County with District Attorney Matt Fogel. So let's get started. Um, help us by defining what these drugs are. What is an opioid? Sure. Typically, uh, as far as the illicit use goes, it's, it's heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, these days, we're seeing more of what's called a synthetic opioid called fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also another level of a synthetic opioid called carfentanyl. And um, both of the latter two are synthetic, as I said, oftentimes imported. Historically, fentanyl has had um, a, a legitimate use mm-hmm. uh, for, for pain relief, you oftentimes an end-of-life Yeah, end-of-life, so it's a very, very powerful Very much drug. so. And heroin today uh, is not new. We've heard of heroin you know, for many years. Yeah. Today, uh, the heroin is much more potent, much more dangerous. Uh, fentanyl is, is much more dangerous than that heroin. Carfentanil is uh, the most dangerous, uh, and it has been used um, as an opioid um, illicitly, oftentimes not knowingly Mm -hmm. um, by whoever the user is, but it's sometimes referred to as an elephant tranquilizer. Uh, Quite literally, it's Mm, it's about as potent as you can get. Now, are those two drugs prescribed legally and then find their way into the illegal markets, or...? Fentanyl in particular has historically been used uh, in the medical community uh, for pain relief. It uh, oftentimes historically has come in a, a patch form. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even then, uh, we have seen over the years, for example, someone who develops an opioid use disorder um, becoming so addicted and, and desperate to, to receive that, sometimes stealing those types of, of patches uh, from their loved ones who may have them for legitimate mm-hmm. pain relief um, just because of that desperation to get them. So sure. we have seen that. Um, heroin, uh, obviously, is an illicit drug mm-hmm. um, in and of itself. Sometimes a purchaser um, of heroin receives fentanyl um, unknowingly. And so that started happening here in 2016. We had our first fentanyl mm. overdose death. That um, that was in March of 2016. And we were waiting on toxicology results. Mm-hmm. Um, there were needles around and presumably what appeared to be heroin um, at the crime scene where the deceased was. And so the toxicology came back uh, negative uh, for that. And so we were a little befuddled uh, right. by that. Given the particular panel of testing we were accustomed to doing at the time, um, we decided to, to run a different kind of a panel and include fentanyl, and sure enough, that's what it was. And so it's been here since then. It's more common in our overdose deaths here in Franklin County um, than regular heroin um, at this point. There are other opioids as well, um, legitimately uh, prescribed, mm-hmm. uh, Percocet, Oxycontin, uh, that sort of thing, um, that 
clearly have a legitimate use and have uh, for a while, um, but as most people know, have been also abused as well. They're, they're very heavily addictive. Um, they're also prescribed fairly easily and quickly. Um, it's my understanding that you go in with back pain and you come out with something of that nature, you know, whether it's an oxycodone or a, I know that I uh, had a fractured my collarbone and was given prescriptions for all mm -hmm. kinds of uh, yeah. heavy drugs that I didn't take part of. But all right, let's get into what you're doing to combat the problem. Well, if I could, if I could just jump back on yeah, that. Sure. Um, I think there is some history there with some over-prescribing or, or mis-prescribing. Uh, and uh, the medical community has taken some lumps recently uh, to account for that. And I, I can say, having dealt with the medical community here and on a state level, that they are very cognizant of this problem, have been for a number of years now, and, and have implemented practices um, to curtail that, that um, there's more education now within medical school regarding uh, addiction, generally speaking. And there are measures that are taken operationally within health networks um, to limit overprescription of these types of pills. Let's get right into that. That's sure. the first topic I want to talk about. The prescription Pennsylvania's Prescription Drug Monitoring Program collects information on all filled prescriptions for controlled substances. So tell us how that works and how you monitor and is it working? It just began um, the, in the last few years. We were um, the last state um, in the country to implement it. And so given how long that it has been um, in use, uh, we don't have a lot of hard data yet um, to know um, the effectiveness of it, specifically here in Pennsylvania. We do know how it's been utilized in other states. Uh, we studied that sort of thing before it began here, and it's been successful other places, so we suspect it will be. But basically how it works is that um, when someone is given a prescription, and just making this very basic, um, it's entered into a database that can then be seen by, by future or, or other pers potential prescribers um, who would provide treatment. Mm -hmm. um, the, the basis for it really is the drugs were so powerful. Yeah. Uh, um, and some people didn't realize that. Uh, they were marketed a certain way, and that's maybe a whole other podcast. But um, I'm sure it is. They entered the stream of commerce um, such as they did. And, and became uh, something that was utilized. And so sometimes uh, historically people would uh, develop that addiction and their doctor would maintain that they didn't need more of it. Mm -hmm. And so you would hear the term doctor shopping. Someone would go to another doctor who was maybe a little bit more uh, liberal with their prescribing practices. Mm -hmm. And so this is what would uh, be eliminated, hopefully, uh, with the implementation of the PDMP. So what does it take to trigger an action by your office? If, you know, I mean, there's got to be HIPAA laws running here. That's a great question in the sense that my office is a, is a law enforcement agency. And what we would prosecute is any unlawful delivery of a controlled substance. And so in that situation... I wouldn't necessarily, I don't monitor the PDMP. Uh, that's a different um, entity. And it leads me to say that where we are right now, particularly with respect to Franklin County, is that 
even though I'm a, a law enforcement uh, officer uh, working with you know police, et cetera, as I do in a traditional role, we have such a collaborative effort in this county that there are a lot of non-traditional uh, hats that I wear from, sure. from day to day and throughout the day. Um, I am the chair of the overdose task force since uh, 2016. And uh, we have a, a very team-oriented, multidisciplinary, uh, collaborative approach. And so I don't have a direct role within the PDMP, but certainly as part of that collaborative, um, and aware, aware of that. So there's people working within that program that would be looking for those red flags that they would report up the food chain. That's right. So it sounds like it, you, you built in a buffer to kind of keep things HIPAA compliant. It's not you and your office monitoring what doctors are That's doing. That's correct, yeah. yes. We, do, we do not have, have eyes on that sort of information. Let's get right into uh, Get Back Up. Mm-hmm. So we addressed the first one, the uh, PDMP, and the number two item here is Operation Save a Life. Can you talk about that? Sure. Operation Save a Life is a program run through uh, Healthy Communities Partnership here locally. Mm-hmm. They're a, a very important um, member of the team uh, with the Overdose Task Force. They're a very important member of the community in general for that matter. Uh, they train uh, local citizens on the proper use uh, of naloxone. I believe now they are also making it available for distribution within those training sessions. Can I just stop you there? Absolutely. Let's get a good definition on naloxone. Sure. Naloxone is a substance which is now carried uh, by police officers um, as well as all of our uh, medic units here in the county. It's, it's not necessarily new. Generally, it's been introduced here in 2016. And essentially what it does is when someone is experiencing an overdose event, um, it can be um, administered uh, to that person who's in distress and uh, block the, the effect of the opioid. And so oftentimes they're referred to as reversals mm-hmm. when that happens. And that's not technically what happens. Not to get too uh, much into the science about how what's happening to someone's brain, but the opioid effect within the brain is stopped, and so there's a blocking that the naloxone effect has, and so it's it's no longer having that typical opioid effect. And so we talk about it in terms of reverse because someone who is just about to die or has technically died is no longer in that situation. So. But technically, it's not a reversal. It's a blocking. And the reason that's important is the effect of naloxone is about a half hour. And so if police or medics go to someone's house and administer naloxone and then nothing else happens after that, chances are once that naloxone wears off, it stops blocking the effect of the heroin or fentanyl, and then they could have a subsequent overdose. And so... In those situations, we make sure um, that those um, individuals go to uh, the hospital, the hospital uh, sure, right for more away. treatment. Sure. Does the county have any problems obtaining it or paying for it? Because it sounds like it's the drug that's going to save a life. Sure. Well, I do know that um, in, in my professional life, we certainly have obtained it rather easily. Um, there was a an initiative with Capital Blue Cross that, that made that available for a lot of law enforcement entities uh, throughout South Central PA. And so starting in 2016, uh, we introduced that here. Basically, we have obtained it for free. 
I can't speak for the county, um, the county drug and alcohol office, and, and what sorts of financial uh, restrictions they've had or, or challenges they've had with that. I, I do know that it is available to the general public. There's a standing prescription um, from our uh, state level saying that anybody, you know, you don't have to have an individual prescription. Everybody basically has one. All right, let's keep moving through the uh, get back up. You've got the number three item there is the prescription pill take back uh, posters and pharmacies. So this is where I guess you're asking people just on their own, you know, put your pills in this container or what have you. Yeah, so we have four police departments throughout the county um, that have these boxes. We have Mercersburg Police Department, Chambersburg, Waynesboro, and Greencastle, all with these boxes that are um, accessible some 24 hours a day, others uh, typical business hours. And so, again, that's that's an initiative we partnered with uh, the state on for um, destruction uh, of those pills. So, basically, it's it's a big box that, that in a secure way, um, we can we can keep people's pills when they need to get rid of them. And the reason it's important is that, as, as you can assume. I think you've mentioned um, you don't want these types of very dangerous pills lying around. Right. And so someone may have been prescribed them legitimately, didn't need to use them all, and so they're just sitting there. Well, they're they're very dangerous to just sit there yeah. because someone else could get into them, purposefully or not, and and then bad things happen. And so um, rather than flushing them down the toilet, um, they should really be properly um, disposed of in one of these boxes. There's no no question asked. There's not a person there right, standing even if they taking put your their, name. Right, even if they put their prescription in and has their name on it, you're not going to pursue it. No, they're they're all right. collected and and destroyed. So it's important not to flush them. I want to make the, that crystal clear. They're going to into go the into the system. water system, oh, and yeah. we're going to have three headed fish in the Conica <laughs> jig, which we don't really want to have. Um, next up is youth prevention. So I imagine you're going out and you're just making kids. Now, what ages do you target? Do you target high schoolers or do you target, you know, middle schoolers and up? Or We don't exclude any particular age range. Studies have shown right now um, in, in this day and age that the most effective age to target is that middle school range. Middle school, yeah. It's not to say that they're writing off, uh, you know, the high school audience either, but just in terms of effectiveness, um, it's, it's pretty standard to target the middle school age range. Um, you know, historically we've had um, programs like D.A.R.E. where police would go in and explain drugs and alcohol and uh, other things to a, a younger demographic. Mm -hmm. um, but we do that. Uh, we have done uh, this sort of thing for a long time, and Healthy Communities Partnership has, mm -hmm. has really taken the lead in our community doing that. We recently, uh, last year, actually last August, we had a, a bigger event that the Overdose Task Force sponsored at the Cash's um, Auditorium. There was a uh, gentleman by the name of Chris Heron who came and spoke. We had uh, received some money by way of donation and utilized that to bring in uh, this speaker. He's got a tremendous story. Um, if you go on uh, online, you can find it on an old 30 for 30 from ESPN. He is a... Uh, well, that's a great show. I'm just going to interject right here. I, I love 30 for 30, but go on. Yeah, great. So he, his name is Chris Heron, and um, he was a, uh, a basketball player, 
grew up outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and um, was actually on the cover of Sports Illustrated with Allen Iverson. Playing for the Celtics by chance? He eventually did. And uh, so he went to college and uh, got uh, tried drugs with cocaine at the time. And throughout the course of the next number of years of his life, uh, experimented with different drugs. Eventually, um, he, he did get out of college, was drafted into the NBA, and uh, eventually did play for the Boston Celtics, his hometown team, and dear to my heart. And uh, eventually then, his use then led to um, opioids and heroin specifically, and his, his life w was essentially destroyed at that point in and out of jail, accidents, uh, his career yeah, in shambles, on. his family, you know, a wreck and grieving. <clears throat> So he, t he came here and told his story, and we had about 1,000 people uh, in the auditorium that night, and he, he was such a good speaker. Um, we hear these days that programs like Scared Straight may not be that effective. Uh, That's what I've heard. They, do, they don't really work. And so his, I want to be clear. His isn't really a Scared Straight. It's, it's a, a look, at, look at what happened to me. Yeah. Um, and that's part of it. But the second part of it is where he, he opens it up for questions. And having walked through that fire and come through the other side, and he's, he's been um, in recovery a number of years now, and his life is dedicated to helping others. He, he keeps it very down to earth. And, and I found that the people that I love to talk to most about this issue are people who are on the other side through, yeah. through that fire and can tell me, exactly how that felt as best they can what worked for them why it began why it continued uh, why it stopped and how it stopped and mm -hmm. and how they stay sober now um, I'm just so much more for, informed by somebody who's been through it and so he really connects with the audience and and, and keeps it very uh, real and down to earth as I said and so I, I talked with him a bit afterwards I, I took him back to his hotel and we chatted a little bit and it was, occurred to me, I'm sure he's heard this a hundred times, but I, the 17 year old uh, young man inside of me who thinks about him probably dreaming of playing for the Boston Celtics yeah. and he gets there and just blows it. Yeah. And, um, but his life now, after having you know that failure, I guess, if you want to call it that, professionally in basketball, his life has so much more purpose uh, than it ever would putting a ball yeah. through a hoop. You know, he's helped to probably literally save lives by by his efforts now. And you feel like the audiences are receptive to his message, and very much so. And we'd like to bring him back, um, particularly into the schools. This was an evening session where we had anybody in the community could come. It was free. Um, and so uh, we would like to see him come back and do some special sessions, uh, like assemblies in different schools throughout the county. So that's, that's one in particular sort of special uh, preventative mm -hmm. uh, measure that we've taken. Yeah, what we've been going through here in this first part sure. is all your preventative measures. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to now your treatment and recovery measures mm -hmm. that you have in the program. So the number one item here is Noah's House. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about Noah's House and what they do and how that works? And one other question as we move into this. Sure. Not everybody who ends up incarcerated gets to be in these programs once we're in treatment and recovery. Is that correct? I mean, you Well, that's right. Well, look, yes, yeah, someone who, who may be abusing drugs may not ever touch the criminal justice system, you know. Um, 
chances are they've they've done something, um, but that's not always necessarily the case. And sometimes maybe you're not caught, you know. Yeah. So not everyone um, in recovery necessarily has a, a, a criminal justice background. But no, to answer your question, um, not everyone at Noah's house, uh, for example, and now Gracie's place uh, for women here in Chambersburg just recently opened. Not everyone there is coming there um, after having, uh, in other words, it's not a home plan as, as some people refer to things when you come out of jail. Um, there's people there who just need to go there. They were in treatment, mm -hmm. needed a place to go in a sober living environment. So that's what it is. It's a sober living it environment? Is. Yes. Okay. And, mm -hmm. And that that started a couple of years ago. We it was our first um, certified recovery home. The state is has worked on certification of that, but there before the certification from the state, uh, which will be coming this summer, um, we had some standards that were were state level and national standards. And Noah's House happened to meet them. It was the first such um, entity we've had here. We probably need thirty of them, unfortunately. Thirty versions of Noah House at uh, sure. Gracie's house. We do, yeah. Um, treatment as a necessity wow. is, is probably understood that like people would have been familiar with someone or, or some circumstance you've heard of where someone needs to go to rehab. You may yeah. have heard that kind of a phrase. Sure. And so that's not something that is unusual for, for the public to hear. What, what my eyes were opened um, with was the need for re recovery housing and the idea really uh, that recovery is a thing and, and it's a mm -hmm. lifetime thing and it's it's something that needs to be nurtured, recognized um, and, and fostered. And so in our community where it's not you know us and them and that sort of thing, it's all us, we're one community. And so there are citizens in the community that we need to set up for success as best we can. And so when I say we need 30, 30 might be high, I don't know, it's probably not. Uh, but we have a capacity for 14 residents at Noah's house, uh, 10 at Gracie's place. And recovery is very important. The recovery community is very important. And again, it's those yeah. people that I said, I, I love to hear their stories and learn what was successful for them and what was unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, um, the first thing isn't the thing that works. Um, maybe it's a couple of times, which is very frustrating. Well, relapse is common, isn't it? It's not uncommon, that's mm -hmm. for sure. Especially with these uh, highly addictive drugs. So we move on from Noah's house. Now we go to what's called peer support recovery specialist. That sounds like a one-on-one -on -one situation. Again, it is someone in recovery uh, to someone who hopes to reach the stage of recovery, someone who's in active use, um, just out of active use, mm -hmm. and, and having someone, you've heard of the term uh, sponsor, I suspect, um, through the AA program, uh, it's that sort of thing, um, basically, um, more more technically um, administered than a sponsor. It's a professional position, and there's some training involved in certification. But it's having that person to support you, who authentically can tell you how they got to where they are. Well, what they've worked. been there. Follow me; I can show you the way. Yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. They've been through, as you say, been through the fire. Right. So they're they're ready to talk about and it. And really, what we want to foster through um, graduates of treatment court, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, people in this community who who we work with and know who are in recovery, we want to create a network of alumni in, in a sense and or, or an army of these folks in recovery mm -hmm. who can then you know, marshal together help 
those in our community who need to get to that next step. Mm-hmm. So again, I think those are really the people who are the most critical uh, to this fight that, that we're in. Yeah. So you say we could use up to 30 of these different facilities, which ultimately leads to the question of what's happening to the people that are being turned away. I don't know that, um, excuse me, necessarily it's a matter of, of turning away. Um, or waitlisted, what have you. Yeah, and I don't know that there's there's not been a lengthy wait list uh, for Noah's house that I'm aware of, but I think what's what's happening in this particular environment is that we haven't had any, and so I don't know that it's something that as many people, including someone who needs it, is even aware of as an option. Mm-hmm. And so we haven't had the circumstance where so many have have come in and, and funneled in. And there's just not enough room. Um, I, I think that it's not the community isn't educated enough uh, to know that we even need this as badly as we do. So that that could become a point where um, there is no room uh, and we do need to find options. Sometimes folks will go out of here where there, there are other, other recovery homes in other jurisdictions. It's not ideal because basically it's a transition from a treatment environment back into the community in, in a slow way. It's a crawl, walk, run, and it just fosters that not too much, too fast back into um, the community where you know it's likely that you were engaged in some maladaptive behavior. You were maybe connected with people yeah, exactly. you should They're not have been connected with. Uh, with. their community where it kind of started, so yeah. you have to be careful there. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a way to, to come back to the community with some caution, uh, setting mm-hmm. someone up for success the best way. So next up, we go to, uh, I'm going to skip up to the Get Back Up DASCA partnership. Mm-hmm. What is the SCA? The Single County Authority, that's the Drug and Alcohol Office for the county. It's an official governmental office. But now with this aspect, we're talking about people that are in the system. With Get Back Up, not necessarily. In fact, no. No is the answer. So there are two different tracks for Get Back Up. Number one is if someone comes into a police department with a controlled substance, with, you know, a bundle of heroin or, um, you know, with some paraphernalia, whatever it is and they say here you can have this i'm surrendering it and can you please help me um i I need help this is a health issue that those items will be taken um eventually destroyed uh no charges will be filed for that and and we will help that person uh, get whatever help they need i think the idea that you've decided uh that this is going to be part of the program is i think it's an, an amazing idea that you can come in and surrender the drugs, and we'll get you started. I think that's amazing, and I, I think it's great that you guys are doing that. Well, it's a health issue. It, it really, truly is. And we have lots of different components to our overdose task force, mm-hmm. um, but and, and law enforcement is one of them. But I don't think, as, as, the, as the DA, I'm saying that I don't think that the law enforcement prong is the most critical component at all. I, I, I'm often asked to go speak places about uh, in here, you know, about um, the opioid epidemic, which is a health, yeah, it's epidemic a health and yeah. crisis. But the the law enforcement guy is asked to talk about that's just because that's how our that's how we've dealt with it historically. And mm-hmm. so we want to get to a point where it's a different environment um, and a different dynamic in how we're doing that. So that's one track of it. The second track is that a police officer who's investigating a crime has discretion. 
and um, that police officer, whatever the crime may be, um, could determine that the best outcome for this situation is, is this person to get help. And, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps but for this addiction, this person might not have done this. Yeah, they wouldn't be stolen. making those choices. And so in that circumstance, um, that officer is equipped with the discretion to, to call my office, get the person who works with us, who's actually an employee of the drug and alcohol office, but embedded in my office, and will go directly there 24-7 on call, meet with uh, that individual, do an assessment, see what help they need. If, if they need long-term treatment, get on the phone and start finding a bed for that person immediately. I want to read something from your PowerPoint presentation that I thought was really, really well stated. You said, the current environment is complex and different than what we have ever previously confronted in law enforcement. It is correctly called both an epidemic and a crisis. Conventional thinking does not apply, and it is time for law enforcement to respond unconventionally on both strategic and operational levels. I thought that was a really well put and it was encouraging in the sense that it's not just you know get tough on crime kind of you know lock them up throw away the key and see what happens it's it's, as you're talking it's clear that you understand your role in this process of getting these people well and back on the streets it's also very nuanced in in making the decisions day to day because the business model uh for drug trafficking uh, of opioids heroin in particular is different than we're used to in law enforcement. A number of years ago, crack was was more prevalent, and the business model, uh, as I put it, was just different than it is now. Uh, someone would come here from a, a major metropolitan area who didn't use as as a business proposition, decided to come here, recruit uh, runners who may or may not have used, but as a business venture, sort of franchising here uh, from Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York. And, and again, not using, but profiting. And so that was crack. And so with heroin, what we're seeing, it's very, very much more nuanced where more often than not, there's a milk run, as I call it, to Baltimore or Philadelphia or New York, where someone just drives to there mm-hmm. rather than someone coming here to set up shop, um, and purchasing a, a, a bunch of it and, and coming back and either uh, selling it or sharing it um, with other users of it. And, and so the definition of dealer becomes much more complex because someone in that situation they're a user too. is introducing a lot of heroin into this county, but they're using it as well. So that's when, when I say it's nuanced from a, from a judgment call uh, perspective, uh, it, it becomes tricky. And so, again, uh, in that, you know, sometimes we have uh, four different people going to uh, Baltimore and, and coming back, and then one person gets this amount and goes here. Something bad may or may not happen. Figuring out what happened and, and who's proportionally involved in that um, is tricky. Mm-hmm. And so, um, when I've been deployed, I, I've had the opportunity to work with some really, uh, really professional elite types of folks and one of the terms they talk about is the heart and the fist and so um you know in a deployed environment if you bear with me uh if you're in overseas and as a uh, as a member of the armed forces and you're interacting with people in the local mm-hmm. government and local communities you, you you want them to uh sort of buy into what you're doing um hearts and minds kind of right, a thing you sure. may have heard that reference before 
And so you're doing things in that community. You're, you're helping orphanages. Uh, you're providing uh, medical services, that sort of thing, building schools, fixing roads, plumbing, that kind of stuff. And you're doing it as a human because it's the, the right thing to do. But also psychologically, it's, it's better for your overall mission that you know, they understand you're not there to occupy that country forever. Right. You're an ally. Uh, and they will give you information to, as to where the actual bad guys are. And then you, you do the fist thing where mm, there's the heart and the fist where it's also a component here where we are thoughtful, more thoughtful, I think, than we've ever been about who's got a dependency issue with this drug. However, there's still that trafficking component. And and again, if you think about it in terms of the fist, there's traditional trafficking investigations. Mm-hmm. And when we have so many people dying now, it becomes that much more, uh, there's that much more motivation. You know, it, it's, you could say maybe when it was crack, where he had many, you know, fewer overdoses and, and certainly deaths. Um, and, and now with so many deaths, um, it just becomes a much more driven and, and, and time sensitive, quite frankly, um, investigation. Mm-hmm. Because the sooner that gets distributed, the more likely it is that, that someone in the community, someone's son, daughter, uh, spouse, uh, is, is maybe going to die. Yeah. So it becomes that much more time sensitive. And there's that much more pressure. With yeah. That. yeah. Do you know by virtue of when you start getting, the police start getting calls that the drugs have hit the streets? Are you that sensitive to what goes on? Is there kind of like a, okay, we're starting to get these calls. Um, you know, we're getting overdoses. Is there, are you able to tie that to these, these uh, milk runs? I can tell you that the, the, the biggest change we've had is the number of deaths. And so with that, we now have homicide investigations right. where we used to have drug delivery, um, drug trafficking investigations, trying to stay ahead of, of, uh, of that distribution and using intelligence networks um, here and outside of the county uh, to coordinate in, in that sort of way. Now, um, one thing that's different these days, unfortunately, is that we'll have a we have the potential of a homicide investigation and potential charge, and it's very time sensitive um, as to when that evidence is collected. It, it can go stale uh, rather quickly. You know, it's interesting with the, even with the Get Back Up initiative where we've opened up the doors to the police department to help people, there's a, a lot of uh, distrust built up Sure. Uh, that we're, we're breaking through. There's sort of a, we talk about stigma with, with someone who's using drugs and, and how the community may view them. There's also sort of that stigma between uh, law enforcement and those in the community, you know, who may have had a prior experience with you know, law enforcement. Um, and so there's that distrust there. And so when we're investigating either a standard delivery or trafficking or one of these uh, deliveries that have resulted in someone's death, you know, people aren't always inclined to, to help the police. Right. That's sort of the reality of what it's like out there. And so um, and now we have um, a, a good Samaritan law, which um, I don't know if that was on the paper. I suspect it wasn't. But, it. but there is a good Samaritan law that I think the spirit of which is something that uh, I totally understand and uh, don't disagree with in terms of the spirit. But well, what it does is it encourages someone who's at the scene of an overdose uh, event 
to uh, get medical attention. And so recognizing that someone who's participating along with someone uh, could be uh, found uh, with you know, potential paraphernalia or drug items when, when official oh, folks they could go to jail. get there. Yeah, so they're, it's prohibitive for them to seek help for somebody right. else. And so the law says if you make that call and you stay, uh, you're immune uh, from criminal liability, um, as is the person who is experiencing the overdose event, obviously presuming that person survives. And so, um, again, I understand the spirit um, of that. What it's done sometimes, though, is prohibit us from helping that person uh, in a sense at times because we are attacking this problem with perhaps what would be referred to as a bit more humanity, if you will. Um, sometimes people don't want help. Right, know? no, they want to know? keep using drugs. And I'll tell you, I, uh, I, and I swear, uh, I'm raising my right hand for the record for those of you who can't see it. Um, I have not spoken to there's not been a person I've spoken to who's in long-term recovery who hasn't said, thank God for jail and the police or I'd right. be dead. Right. And I wish we, it didn't have to be like that, you know? Um, but so the one thing with the good Samaritan law is that the, I guess the negative part of it is that someone cannot be influenced or compelled to get help. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Yeah. Um, so understanding the spirit of that law, um, that we want people to, to make the call so that the person uh, doesn't perish, um, they're not perishing, but they're not, you know, mm-hmm. we, we may be there tomorrow yeah. because they haven't had that intervention of, of treatment. Right, right. Um, moving on through more of the treatment and recovery, sure, uh, sure. let's do talk about treatment court. Um, mm-hmm. So w- tell us about that, what it means. Is it working? Um, let's get into that. Definitely. It's um, about a year into it. We started last spring with treatment court. It's certainly not anything that Franklin County uh, invented. It's been around uh, for 20, 30 years, I think, nationally. So it's nothing that we just came up with and are taking credit for. But we we just started it here. We focused on uh, those who have an an opioid addiction. Um, They're identified as early as possible. And it's interesting because this is something the DA's office has been doing for probably two or three or more years before treatment court. Uh, we had partnered with an entity called Gaudenzia who would come into court um, weekly, and we would identify individuals who were defendants in cases mm-hmm. who, who may need some sort of a treatment. If I can just interrupt yeah, sure, sure. quickly, Gaudenzia is a uh, treatment center it is. for drug and alcohol addiction. Three different states um, that they operate in, uh, I believe 30 plus different types of facilities, all different kinds, uh, some specializing in, uh, for example, uh, treatment centers for mothers and their children can be there, uh, some for uh, those with co-occurring uh, mental health uh, needs there. So we had partnered with them and they came down and, and began to assess some of the folks that we identified with a quick screen and then helped us get them in, in, into treatment, then we would sort of factor that into someone's uh, overall disposition of their case. But mm-hmm. our primary emphasis for many years now was, was to get that person some help. You know what's interesting? Oftentimes a victim in a case is a family member in a situation right. like this. And that it's probably the third, fourth, fifth time that person's been victimized by their loved one, oftentimes a theft. 
and something being pawned, you know, for right. money to money. buy more drugs. Right. So they have some level of guilt, uh, you know, unnecessarily, but but they do because it's a loved it's one, and family. now you're yeah. sending them to jail potentially, and you know, where does this end up now? They're going to continue to spiral, and so. Now, with, with what we were doing with Cadenzia, now with treatment court, I think those families can feel uh, more confident, obviously, and we mm-hmm. get back up, quite frankly, that they mm-hmm. can feel more confident that, that their loved one's going to get help. Um, so we were certainly influenced by the idea of, of, of victims often coming in to us, asking us mm-hmm. to do this. And it's sort of the reason we, we do what we do. It's the reason I do what I do is... is uh, Essentially, I want to help someone get justice. If something happened to them that shouldn't have happened, and I sort of want to champion uh, them and and make sure someone's held accountable for what happened to this person. And so um, we have 44 individuals in treatment court now. After that assessment is done and um, someone is, um, for example, um, recommended for an inpatient facility oftentimes it's a longer term with heroin given the nature of it it's often at least a 90-day uh, inpatient uh, residential setting and then back out into the community which is you know Noah's house has worked uh, very well and in concert with treatment court there's a number of participants in treatment court that are at Noah's house but they 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 come into court they, they plead guilty uh, to their offense and uh, oftentimes they're coming out of jail into that treatment environment. So they're being released uh, from jail uh, to a treatment bed and then back out in the community, oftentimes Noah's house, as I said. Mm-hmm. And so what happens then is it's different than it's reg- from regular supervision. So oftentimes when someone is on parole or probation, uh, they have periodic check-ins with a probation officer. Right. Um, there's urinalysis occurring, that sort sure, of thing. Sure. With treatment court, that's just much more frequent. Mm-hmm. And we have a team of individuals that meet every two weeks prior to court. Um, it's me uh, from the DA's office, uh, President Judge Van Horn uh, from the court. She's the presiding judge. Um, our SCA, as we referred to earlier, her name's April Brown. Uh, she's our drug and alcohol um, supervisor here for the county. Uh, we have uh, someone from Gaudenzia there who can who does the assessments. We have our treatment team coordinator. We have a public defender, um, one probation officer dedicated to all these cases, and then we have someone from the law enforcement community there to represent. So we talk about all of their cases in detail, mm-hmm. um, in, in painstaking detail. Uh, and that's a lot of different court. perspectives really being is. brought to bear. We're used to, yes, that and, you know, for me, for the public defender, for the judge, it's typical for us to uh, have a case come through ultimately to a sentence. And once that final sentence occurs, we don't really expect to see that person or we don't see that person, mm-hmm. obviously, unless there's another criminal event. But so we don't know what happens after they leave the courthouse. Right. Um, are they going to are they doing all right? Are they are they not They're getting ready to reoffend? Maybe. Right. And so they come in every two weeks then to court. And, and meet with Judge Van Orn, and and you know she would have received that update prior to court, but we're all going over all of the updates uh, for everything they might need, and so uh, we really have a focused effort on on these specific individuals to set them up for the best success. We, we select what we call the highest risk and highest need individuals, so mm-hmm. we're betting on long shots here, uh, quite frankly, and it's it's 
it's been very fulfilling. Um, it's quite, oh, it's quite different, uh, for me, as I said, I, I don't usually know exactly what happens with individuals once they leave court. Mm-hmm. And now when you see someone at their, uh, proverbial rock bottom, which is a term we don't really like to use anymore, but you see someone at one of their lowest points right. and, uh, then go to treatment, come back, um, or engaging in recovery, uh, working that recovery process um they're they're different people there's a metamorphosis you're watching every two weeks and they just keep getting better and better and there's lots of components to include you know employment uh family situations and it all comes up and to hear people and there's there's folks that are in treatment court that we've had encounters with perhaps many many times previously and to hear them talk about their past and, and their future, more importantly, uh, it's, it's pretty uplifting. It, it's not all roses. Not everyone is successful. Oh, sure. uh, and so treatment court's a little different. It's, I don't want to, I don't know what the best word is to use. Tolerant comes to mind, but um, we sort of expect uh, that this isn't necessarily going to go perfectly. Um, there are, there are penalties. You're dealing with human all. beings. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's all humanity. Um, that's what I love about my job. It's, uh, it's flesh and blood. So, um, you know, people, when they uh, have missteps or, or the reverse of that, if, if they have successes, uh, they're recognized. And so the missteps are, are, you know, not generally, um, good events in someone's right. life on the receiving end, but they're not necessarily given up on. And so that, that the behavior is going to be addressed, but then they're, they're back into this, mm-hmm. what we call our pack. It, it's good wolf treatment court. And the reason we call it good wolf treatment court is because of an old, uh, Cherokee parable, which, uh, goes like this. Um, uh, a, a young Cherokee is troubled and, has what we would really call anxiety uh, is troubled by something and is very upset and eventually goes to the the head of the the Cherokee uh, tribe and and the chief and says expresses this this anxiety and this this troubled uh, situation and and the chief reflects on it and says to the to the young Cherokee well what's happening is inside of you there's two wolves and there's a struggle they're fighting right now Mm -hmm. there's a fight there's a good wolf and a bad wolf, and they're inside all of us. So I'm familiar with what you're going through. We all have to go through this at some point. Uh, there's a good wolf that represents joy, love, peace, uh, all of the good things. There's a bad wolf that represents you know, violence, hate, jealousy, greed, all those sorts of things. And they struggle inside of you. And when they're fighting, they're fighting for you. And when that happens, you, you, you feel the way you're feeling right now. And so that's what's happening. And so... Um, the young boy contemplated that and said to the, the chief, so which wolf wins the fight? And the, the chief says, the one that you feed. And so the theme then for the good wolf treatment court isn't just that we want these individuals to not break the law. That's a really low bar. Right. Right. It, it's not hard to not get in trouble. Right. It's a It's a pretty reasonable standard to expect. What what we found, what I believe, is that when, when someone is focused on something positive rather than not doing the negative, they're much more likely to have success. And so a lot of court really is very similar to, to, to raising a child. And I, I, don't, I don't mean that dismissively either, but a lot of just intellectually. Uh, uh, no, the way raising you a child it. is. <laughs> yes, it could be intellectually challenging to figure out what. If, if you want a certain outcome or right. behavior, 
what's the smartest way uh, to get that that person to buy in really and so for a child when when you say something is forbidden um it it becomes the most Mm -hmm. interesting thing ever in the world and so what good the good wolf concept means is that you know join something that's positive this may be the first time you've ever done this in your life Mm -hmm. just given given your history and and so chances are uh, you start to build relationships with people who are also doing these positive things and chances are you don't want to let them down right and chances are you're going to be busy enough uh concentrating on on giving back to the community that you're not going to really even have time to focus on and that anything bring, negative. That brings yeah. me to uh, the final aspect of this rehabilitation. We're going to leave the law, the, the law enforcement component alone for this, the purpose of this conversation, but yeah. aftercare, continued rehabilitation, employment, uh, do you have any programs to help people? Because, you know, once that they got to check that box on the uh, employment form and write, you know, what happened... You know, I've been in that situation where reviewing applications and you just, you have to take a bit of a jaundiced eye to those applicants. So is there anything your office or any of these programs are doing to kind of, because what you're talking about is, you know, gainful employment is a big part of, I think, Mm self-esteem and Mm -hmm. having purpose, as you talk about, feeding that good wolf. Mm -hmm. Concur. So are you involved in that or do you have programs that are involved in that? Within treatment court, um, we do have, as part of that sort of holistic approach to it, um, there are um, certainly attempts made to help those individuals seek meaningful employment. And, and so what I mean by meaningful is um, there's, there's having a job and, and there's having something that's sort of a, something that will give you a sustainable right. income, uh, long-lasting. And so employment's important. Mm-hmm. Um, but... We're also sort of careful about just just getting a job. Um, right. Education is another concern of mine, and there's some of those potentially some of those same barriers with federal um, student aid assistance yeah, you know, with those kinds of backgrounds. And so, I'm very interested in I'm very interested in in the idea of not only these 44 individuals in treatment court, but some of the other ones that we've worked with over the years, and we'll continue to. I'm interested in them putting a ceiling to what they can do and thinking that, you know, those sorts of opportunities, that job, you know, whatever that would be in quotes or, or going to college Mm -hmm. and getting that to particular degree, whatever it was, would be that they would prefer is unattainable. I, I, we want to change that mindset and because that's some of that same mindset that is, is maybe kept them in this environment, you know, and affected their self-esteem. What's the point? I can't achieve anything. So why not, you know, slip back into the old lifestyle? That's right. So, all right, well, we're about to wrap up, but I'd like to end on a high note if we could. Um, do you feel like the situation, you have some control of the situation in Franklin County or what is your feeling right now? I can tell you, well, to keep it on a positive note, um, I would start by saying that Franklin County, quite candidly, uh, was very far behind uh, with respect to treatment options, um, to that recovery base uh, here. I can tell you that that while we have a lot of work to do, uh, that we've done uh, a lot of work in a pretty short amount of time, but you know we still have a lot of work to do. But there are people in the community, people that are involved with the overdose task force, 
people in law enforcement, quite frankly, who are thinking about things a lot differently than mm-hmm. they ever did before. Um, so I'm very confident um, that with that continued uh, spirit in this community, um, that we'll continue to get better and better and see fewer and fewer overdoses. Yeah, good. I don't think, I, it's the analogy in my mind is it's almost like a tsunami where the water drained out and no one knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, everyone was dealing with this opioid mm-hmm. epidemic. So don't be too hard on yourself for <laughs> maybe not being caught up. Listen, thank you so much for being here today. Yes, sir. Um, it was a great conversation. I hope you'll come back sometime and we can talk about other topics. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to throw over to producer Jeremy. Producer Jeremy here. Um, just a reminder, in case we do get this podcast posted in time, that there is a second Saturday event, a Common Grounds event, at the Coil Free Library on Saturday at 10 a.m. And the guest speaker will be none other than Matt Fogel, our guest today. So go check him out in person. And the Common Grounds events at the library every second Saturday are put on by the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. You can find more information on these and so much more at FCCforprogress.org. Also, uh, we're working on a show for next week. What do we have, Pete? Transource Powerline. Uh, we're going to be talking with the people who are spearheading the organization to stop the uh, power line from coming through Franklin County. Um, this is a big topic. Um, this is about private property. This is about eminent domain. This is about the small guy versus the big guy. So you're going to want to tune into that show. Yeah, and then the May 26th is the opening day for the farmer's market in downtown Chambersburg. So the week uh, prior to uh, the opening there, we're going to try to have a uh, show about the farmer's market. Yeah, so, talk to the good uh, people at the farmer's the market. week after next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've got that. And uh, with that, I guess we'll sign off. We'll remind people that we can be found at progresspod.org on iTunes. Uh, go into the iTunes store and search for Progress Pod. You can subscribe to us there. And we're also on SoundCloud. And the best Twitter feed on the internet, at ProgressPod. If you say so. Check it out. At the ProgressPod. At the ProgressPod. <laughs> All right. I just tweet. I don't know. Yeah. I do. okay. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks.